Transmission from the Deep Space Vessel Death by DVD. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. This is Death by DVD with I, Alexander Nash, and Hank, the world's greatest. That's me. On this episode, we begin a multi-part series about the first six Star Wars movies by George Lucas. Okay, if really we were going to be talking about Star Wars, I would fucking murder myself. There is no way I'm talking about Star Wars on this podcast. Star Trek, on the other hand, yes, sir. I watched three movies with Mark Hamill whining, and then I watched three more movies with Ewan McGregor whining, and we're not going to talk about any any of them? None? No, because Star Wars sucks. That's not winning us any fans, but I don't care. Just not a Star Wars fan. I have been texting you for weeks. Just finished Return of the Jedi. I, I just watched the Phantom... What, at any point, were you ever going to tell me? Why, why, Hank? What are you watching those for, buddy? Oh, oh, that was a goof. I was just having a goof on you. Oh. Well... I guess while you explain to the audience Star Trek, I'm going to check out the Wikipedia real quick (laughs) and see. Well, we are going to be talking about Star Trek for quite a while. We're going to be talking about the... What do you mean quite a while? How many of them are Quite a while. Over an extended time period, we'll be talking about the first original series Star Trek films. From the motion picture all the way to Undiscovered Country. We're not going to be doing Next Gen. We're not going to be doing fucking CW shows or Paramount shows or whatever the fuck else they did. No Deep Space Nine, no Next Gen. This is all just original series. And guess what? We're not even going to talk about the original series. We're just talking about the first six Star Trek films. And caveat at the beginning of this, I'm not a huge Star Trek guy. I... Don't and never particularly got into any of the TV shows. We are strictly discussing the films and the concepts within those first six films. Uh, I don't give a shit about the original series. If you want to ask me some technical questions about how the hyperdrive works, I don't care. I don't know, and we're better for that. This is more philosophic uh, story concepts and just kind of film discussion in general, as we usually do on the show. Not nerding out too hard. And all jokes aside, I I really haven't seen Star Wars. I, Alexander Nash, is going to be the more familiar company in this situation. My biggest memories at some point during my childhood, I saw the one about the whales. And when we began this and the research to doing the original six movies, I still wasn't certain if it was about the Welsh or, like, humpback whales. I now know the answer to that question. This really is the first time I've ever run through the original six Star Trek movies, so uh, we know the usual. We just talked about this on the last episode of Death by DVD celebrating our 12th birthday. I usually put a great deal of research into things, and I'm really anal, and I want to present all the facts and trivia and fun things that you could know about Star Trek. I don't know dick about this. I have made my... Yeah, all of this I've made my first opinions on as I've watched it, and... That has become the really intriguing and fun thing about doing this entire movie series is you're not a diehard. You went in cold, man. Yeah, I went, in, I went in very, very cold, and you're not a diehard, I know everything. You're not a Trekkie or a Trekker. You have no preference to anything about it, and I knew absolutely nothing. So we're really, we're probably- I know 
the movies. I know the first six movies. I don't even know them well. I just I've seen them a few times uh, each at least, and I I've never sold generations. I've never seen generations, and I've seen the other next gen movies, but that's because one of my uh, friends, what who is a Trekkie. Um, and I'll call him a Trekkie and not a Trekker because I want to shame him. He dragged me to all the next-gen movies. I had to see Nemesis. I had to see that remake movie, which was not very good. I have not seen any of the sequels Ooh, to that, seen that movie. I did. I saw that in theater, the Kelvin Universe, whatever nonsense. I, I caught that in theater, and I do remember that there is one where there's a clone of Captain Picard, I think. Star Trek Nemesis. Maybe. That's Nemesis. That's next gen. I feel like it's I've not seen a good that. movie. <laughs> yeah. So aside from things like that, uh, my knowledge of Star Trek is very, very dismal. And I, I do feel that we're entering really unknown kind of scary territory here because we've been dealing with horror fans and horror enthusiasts for 12 years now. And these people, those people, who you calling these people, man? Horror fans <laughs> can be very, very particular and can be very easily offended and they fight back over the smallest bit of nonsense. But apparently Star Trek fans will come to your house with a loaded fucking shotgun if you say something particularly wrong. So I, I, I do have trepidation over this entire series, but as somebody that's come into it really, really cold, before we even begin our, our trek into Star Trek, I, I really enjoyed myself. I was blown away that I had as much fun as I had going through this series to the point where I may or may not be watching the original series now. Well, and that's the thing about Star Trek is people do have a lot of preconceived notions uh, about it through you know pop culture and media. And most of those preconceptions are not far off base because the world of Star Trek is uh, can be very expansive. They had a, a magazine, a monthly magazine that was just blueprints of ships. And like to me, that's just irrelevant information. If you're really into all this stuff, fine. If you want to like completely nerd out and go into a different world, whatever. That's just not my thing. Because my thing, especially with the first six movies, is the philosophic concepts that are discussed. Uh, some of the science concepts, but the science stuff, it never particularly interested me in Star Trek because it, that just seems like gadgetry and a bunch of like made up sci-fi nonsense. Well, I think it's a lot of coming down to our time period too, that maybe because of your age and generation, these things don't fascinate you as much as it would have with the original audience that was there in, in 1966, 1968 and was watching. I, I know somebody just cringed cause I got the years wrong, but the people that watched the original series, I think the technology and I was talking about this on a recent episode about um, John Carpenter's first film, Dark Star. A lot of the the depictions of space and science movies and science fiction movies, rather, were, were nowhere near what we ended up getting to the late 60s, that you had Stanley Kubrick and then you had Star Trek, and you've got these very pristine, uh, almost lonely images of traveling space. And before that... The majority of science fiction films were monsters coming to Earth, creatures coming to attack here, attack the 50-foot woman's, things like that, as to where Star Trek started voyaging into a completely different territory, and the people that got to see that for the very first time, there wasn't a really big exposure, like you could go to a planetarium and things like that, but Star Trek really started developing the idea of space travel when it came to motion pictures. Well, just, and deep space travel with that, not just, like, going to Mars or the moon, but, like, going out, like, out of the fucking universe and running into different life forms, different civilizations, to boldly go where no man's gone before. 
that sort of thing. And the original series did that quite well. It has some real goofball episodes in there, but it has some pretty intelligent philosophic ones. And I think especially the first three movies in the movie series really holds true to those philosophic concepts. And um, hmm. preferably you'll need to have seen Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, I will give a super brief description of what the plot of it is, but that's as far as we're going. Watch the goddamn movie before you listen to this show, because we're going to be jumping around wildly from point to point to point. Before we really dive into things, this composed itself to be quite a bit of a challenge for me because I was under the assumption that I could just dive into Star Trek. And beginning the show, I guess it's going to be a fault on my end bringing this up. You can to an extent, but you're going to end up finding, if you're not familiar with the show, you're going to find yourself going to Wikipedia's, Googling things, because even the first movie, a lot of things are referential to the original five-year mission that this crew went on and their friendships and the abilities one has and the trust has inside of each other. And then when we move on into the second film, all of those things are much more important, but some of the cast members and people in the second film, it does help if you have previous knowledge of the show. Well, you, just having a base, con, like knowing who Spock is, knowing he's a Vulcan, knowing yeah. these sorts of things really does help. And, you know, there's things that are introduced in the show that were really amazing to people at the time period that kind of are remarkable to Star Trek, because in the first movie we learn that there's pretty much like a, a demilitarized zone, a neutral zone between the Klingons and the Federation. Previously in the show, it was only something like a DMZ, pretty much a demilitarized zone between them and the Romulans. There's a lot of things that are background that's really mesmerizing, but when you don't know why that's important, like, well, why are why do they have this issue with the Klingons? All of this stuff is inside of the show. So when you're first starting to watch the movie, you're just kind of like, well, why do these guys have a beef with these other people? And it, it, it entirely, really, for the first three movies, as I, Alexander Nash is beginning to get into, it's not really important, but who the characters are and some of their relationships previously the relationships established. relationships is the most important thing, I'd say, because the first one starts off being kind of wildly different than the, than the series because of how the ca characters are acting towards each other. Uh, the base concept here is, you know that Captain Kirk... You know, the Starship Enterprise, you know, all that basic stuff. Well, throw that out the window because Kirk has now become an admiral. He is no longer on the Starship Enterprise and they've recommissioned Enterprise with a whole new crew to go out and, um, you know, do new missions. And the particular mission that's going on now is this cloud of mystery that it seems to be just absorbing ships throughout uh, the, uh, the Federation's, you know, area that like uh, a lot of the different um, civilizations are in. So the Enterprise gets commissioned to go out and examine this before this big cloud of energy comes to Earth to basically pro possibly destroy civilization on Earth. I think that's one of the exciting moments, especially for fans of the time period, because the movie begins with these very detailed models of Klingon ships. And this, of course, is way before an era of computer-generated imagery, so all of this was shot, and all of this is on matte paintings. And you get to see a lot of things that were just thought of before when it came to being a Star Trek fan. And you're introduced to these Klingons, and they immediately are like evaporated by this 
this mist for a lack of better terms and then you get exposed on top of that to even greater architecture that really I think is as even as a dated movie you see something like 2001 a space odyssey and all these grand super clean images of what space and space stations would look like and then you see something like star trek the motion picture and you've got this space station that just gets for lack of better terms disappeared by this force and the movie begins with this friendly nature of everyone getting back to know each other. It's Kirk's return to the ship. He's not seen many of his crewmates for quite some time. And on top of that, we have the imagery of Spock, one of the most beloved characters in the series, performing the Kulinar ritual, where he, for all intents and purposes, is completely erasing his human side. All Because he is half Vulcan, half human so he's taking this this test to become the ultimate that he is going to finally become 100 percent logical but he has felt a stronger sense of urgency than he has ever felt before some form of connection something immaculate well, he's connected to the energy field in a way and it's something stronger than his own power which is is we fans of the show have been introduced to vulcans and introduced to their intricacies and the same goes for romulans and what you're given here with spock on his home world and he's wearing ritualistic robes he's preparing to pretty much evolve you get the coherency of the rest of the movie because what spock is attempting to do is pretty much beyond logic, despite the Vulcans being 100% logical beings. He's erasing emotion, and the theme of this movie will come forward to the evolution of the need of emotion. So we are formulating pretty much the entire movie and giving it away with the whole Kulinar thing at the beginning of the movie, which I was fascinated with. I, I'll say this at the beginning of the show, the most beloved character, Spock. I don't really care for the green-blooded bastard, but being exposed to his world and seeing the rituals and the religious aspect of it is something very beautiful with Star Trek, and that's the inclusatory nature of bringing all different races and worlds and religions into one tiny place where everyone is accepted and loved and looked upon as the same person. Well, quite literally on Earth, it's basically a socialistic paradise where no one... They don't uh, there's use no money. Like, really money left and people all kind of get along and that's why we're venturing out into space because Earth has kind of fixed most of its fucking problems so now we can kind of conquer space. And you get all this introduced to you without even knowledge of the show through in the movies. Like we see Spock going on this ritual and his urgency is what causes him to not complete it. And then we go into this very friendly nature where all these faces that we know, George Takei, James Doohan, D. Kelly, Leonard Nimoy, or Shatner, everyone is finally, for the first time, I think, to those audiences, you're exposed to your former heroes, but when you come into it cold like me, it's finally like, well, this is what Captain Kirk is, and Admiral Kirk, his exposition and how he's shown at the beginning of this movie, I do think defines like what the expectation of Kirk is to, to fans in the audience. And that's a bit like if you're going into this cold, that's one thing, one of the intricacies you're not going to pick up, because at the beginning when... Like there is a core cast on the bridge of the Enterprise, but really you have your three main cast members, which are Captain Kirk, Spock and Bones, the doctor. Those are the the three friends, as you would put it on the like the original series. But their relationship is strained. They've taken completely different paths. And that is really what this movie is about, is them coming together as friends again and they all have arcs and it's not just in this film they have an arc because they are friends at the end of this film but they don't really complete the entire arc of where the first three films go until the end of part three kirk's arc is 
He is gregarious. He is sure of himself. He has the most confidence you can have. And in the first three films, he learns to be humbled. And that's really what his character arc is. Uh, Spock's character arc is learning to give up this idea of a full logical life and realizing that his human side is also important to who he is as a, as a being and bones learns to appreciate Spock and become friendly with Spock. And those are the three character arcs that we're working with. Um, more so than any is Kirk's where so much of these first three films are about his humbling about him realizing that he needs other people it's not just about what he thinks, feels, and needs. It's his friends are what's going to get him through his hardest battles through life. And it's not just the decisions he makes. It's the decisions they all make together. Um, and that really shows in the film because um, he does take over the helm of the Enterprise in Star Trek the Motion Picture because there was a captain who he just kind of says, ah, I'm the captain now. You go uh, go work over there where, where a hooer usually works. And throughout the film... Kirk does learn a lesson, and you can see because the captain... What was the captain's name? Willard Decker. Okay, Captain Decker. And Decker has a problem with Kirk taking over the helm, and he kind of gives him some shit about it because he knows the ship better than Kirk ever will. He can't... You're just coming onto the ship and pretending like you own the place. And Decker will occasionally give some advice and orders, and Kirk kind of shouts him down, like, stop questioning me. And eventually, throughout the film, like he starts listening to Decker and going... Maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I do need to listen to somebody well, else. it's not even eventual. I mean, it comes right off the bat because they... Captain Kirk announces that he will be taking over the Enterprise and lets Willard become gracefully the XO. And as they venture off and have their very first encounter of this entity that will later be known as V'ger, Kirk makes an order and immediately Willard declares, no, 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 don't do that. It needs to be a proton torpedo and stops... Sulu from firing and it seems like a moment between the two where they finally come up with a an idea of their relationship and you have a sequence where Kirk meets with Bones and Spock back in their quarters and he brings Willard forward and tells him I need you to keep me in line so his humbling I think is exposed to us a little bit earlier on well the big humbling scene that I'm thinking of is Kirk says something and Willard corrects him and he pauses Kirk pauses for a minute and goes you have a point I'm sorry. And that's really him backing off. That's him really saying, okay, I realize now that it can't just be all about me and my decisions. I need to listen to everyone on this crew to make the appropriate decisions of what's going on. That's very much a big step for that character because um, he's always been, you know, the leader of the Starship Enterprise and he's always been like a very gregarious leader. He's very much a uh, vocal and outspoken. And sometimes maybe he does need to shut the fuck up and listen to somebody else. And that will continue through the first three films three films as well. I think that's itself an evolution, though, of his relationship with Spock, because formidably, Spock would allow Kirk to compose ideas with logic and make the decision in his head, which a lot of the times would force him to combat his own bravado and his own ego. So what we have with Willard is Kirk even seeing a version of himself and knowing all the mistakes that he has made. He doesn't necessarily want Willard to do it, but he also has to come to terms with the fact that he is not logged space years as we are informed in this movie in two years so he's been on earth he's been back home in iowa we don't know what he's done after he's, he's an admiral whatever admirals do nothing specifically important but he's he's out of touch it's his 
connection to the people on the Enterprise that ends up making him an exquisite captain and why in this situation he's so necessary. And it makes him whole again. That's what we really get at the end is him becoming whole. Ahem. This seems like a great place to interrupt the show for everyone's favorite game. But this time, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Transmitting from a starbase right outside of Uranus. If you're receiving this message, then it's time to set phasers to stunned. Because we're playing a grand new game. It's the same as the old one, but this time it's William Shatner. Oh! DeForest Kelly. 1972's Night of the Lepus, a film about an Arizona rancher named Cole Hillman who is dealing with a massive rabbit overpopulation on his land. He calls on local college president Elgin Clark to help him. In order to humanely resolve the matter, Elgin brings in researchers Roy and Jerry Bennett who inject the rabbits with chemicals. However, they fail to anticipate the consequences of their actions as a breed of giant mutant rabbits emerge and start killing everyone in sight. Who plays the local college president, Elgin Clark? Is it William Shatner? Oh, or is it DeForest Kelly? Well, call me an old country doctor because it's DeForest Kelly. Are your tribbles trembling? Because I know mine are. Thanks for playing another out-of-this-world round of Keith David. Oh, uh, oh, <clears throat> sorry. DeForest Kelly. Oh, or William Shatner. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. And now, back to Hank. Because he does have his, basically, I mean, they are his underlings, but they are his friends. And he has his friendships back. And that's what's important and makes him whole as a being. The entity that we're introduced to, there are similar things with, with questionable power, stronger or maybe weaker that you are presented to in the original series. But... Until, what, a good quarter of this movie, it's unknown even what we're dealing with. We don't know if it's an enemy or if it's a spaceship or if it's, it's some... Three-fourths, pretty much. It's almost towards the end before we really find out what this entity is. Yeah, we don't know if it's some sort of omnipotent being that has come from another planet or anything. All we know and what's established is that this creature wants to meet the creator. And going into Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek universe, something that you were talking about earlier, it is kind of based off a perfect society. Nobody has money, everyone has use, everyone has needs. What exactly is the idea of a creator? Something that's not really been talked about before when it comes to the heavens and hells and the series exploring the great unknown and going into the universe. But what the Federation does essentially is attempt to cause peace and to establish the same thing that's happened on Earth throughout the entire universe. So it's not like they're missionaries destroying people's cultures and introducing Christianity. 
They're just trying to establish a peaceful barrier between this world and the next. What we're presented with here is this ultimate force, this being that seems to be evaporating absolutely everything it's coming into contact with. And that could almost be said with the same thing that uh, Kirk's interactions have been throughout the series. And we move into this point, we have a very bravado-based guy, somebody that's very stuck on old-fashioned ways and isn't willing necessarily to evolve and to move into a higher level of his thought process, which is the exact same thing that is happening in Spock's life as he attempts to go forward with the Kulinar and become 100% logic. I think in the very first movie, the one character that is the difference between all of them and the reason that Kirk learns and the reason that Spock grows forward and learns is Bones, Dr. McCoy, because he is the most emotional person on the entire enterprise but his emotion comes with the cost and that is that's logic it's the perfection of what spock wants to be though he hates his human side now i'm rambling i'm sorry i've gotten well, into this I shit mean, man and like spock is definitely different than he was on the series when he first comes back to the enterprise about midway through the film because he has been gone for so long and he has been traveling down this path of logic and viger teaches him something about himself that touch emotion is like really what brings things together and really what can be important because what Viger is is it it's wanting something it can never have because Viger is artificial intelligence and if you really want to break down everything of what Viger is Viger is a Voyager satellite that got shot up into space in the 1980s and it came across a, a, a race of um AIB. It got sucked into a black hole at some point during its mission, and when it came out of that black hole, it encountered a planet of artificial intelligent computer beings that were, I mean, I don't want to say they're half human, but they had created their own form of sentient emotion, and from that point basically, forward... Basically, Viger has become sentient. And what happens with, uh, I mean, the reason it became sentient is its one sole mission, and it was programmed to learn everything it could and report it back to its creator, which was NASA, some programmer at NASA that it, for years and years and years until it went into this black hole was looking at its information but as it traveled three four hundred years throughout time and space it adapted because it, it never turned off it never quit dying so after it learned and it amassed this certain amount of information it had technically come up with its own personality and delved into the idea of what a soul is the problem is it lacked the touch and the emotion of formulating that soul into anything outside of ones and zeros the fun part is Star Trek gets so deep is, and I, I read this theory, I think Gene Roddenberry made a quip about it, but when V'ger goes into the black hole, the planet that it encounters is the Borg. And maybe V'ger is the people that taught the Borg its its incessant information or need. See, I can't speculate on, like, because this is like a conspiracy theory, though. <laughs> it's not like yeah. this isn't canon. Well, I, when you read this quip, that, and I'm using that word very specifically, when you, when you read this quip that came from Gene Roddenberry, he said it jokingly, and it was at some Star Trek convention, and it was meant to be a joke to entice people. But I love that idea, because as you've established with listening to Death by DVD before... I love getting deep into stuff, but I like it when it's theoretical. I don't want it to be canon. I don't need 38 movies. We're talking about Star Trek, and I'm like, I don't need 38 movies to explain the story, but there is a defense of this, because you look at something like Star Wars. Each movie continues 
this legacy and it keeps digging deeper and it makes the holes in the information deeper and it more almost useless. You go from the original series and then you go to the prequels, you have all this midichlorian bullshit and all this legacy onto who can be a Jedi and how they can be a Jedi. When Star Trek seems to continuously progress, even with the newer movies, which I can't comment wholly on, it's not so much exploring the different ideas and how we can turn this into a bigger legacy. It's going to different universes and more more Rod Serling-like than anything. There's always a deeper meaning to the idea. There's a lot of science and there's a lot of sci-fi and there's exploratory things, but it's not this inner-deepening legacy. You've got the good guys and you've got the bad guys. Star Trek, every single episode of the show and the movies could almost be compared to a Western, which I really think... If, if I'm not wrong, is what the entire idea, the pilot of the TV series, what they wanted was to do, a, a, you know, a really great exploratory Western in space. And Gene Roddenberry kind of fought, fought the censors at the time because the original pilot features a woman in a lead character. Uh, much of the cast, as we know, is different. There's a completely different captain, but it is an anti-smoking future where people of all different races and sexes are equals as one, and that itself is starting at the very beginning of Star Trek. When we get into this first motion picture, by the time this came forward, a lot of things were, were different. You were able to show so many more different things that it's not just men and women and people of color. It's different races and uh, races. It's different species. There's different aliens. There's all these things that have come under the same roof and are equally happy working and, and expanding a peaceful universe. There's it's something space fucking... communism. There's something great about that, though. <laughs> like you, I look at Star Wars and I look at the universe that's inside of that and I feel like I'm never going to be able to get up to speed. I'm never going to learn as much as the people that have pre-established interests or have liked this since they were seven and just a few weeks ago I started watching Star Trek and I'm like fuck yeah this is great I feel like I'm fucking a member of the Federation I'm down for this I feel welcomed I <laughs> and it's 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 a weird random going on here and I don't mean to draw lines in the sand and by no means am I trying to shit all over George Lucas and the, the, the enterprise of what Star Wars has become but I think the biggest difference in what makes Star Trek especially with the motion picture and when you move into the core six of the original series is the universe, that everyone is included, everyone is welcomed, and everyone is wanted. And it feels that same way about like the, the, the fans. It feels that way getting into Star Trek, that it doesn't matter who you are and at what point you get into this. People just kind of like you because you're into the same thing as them, a sentiment that I think the horror community in general could really use and expound upon. How about you just welcome everybody and be nice? Well, I mean, I think the, the marked difference is in the tiles alone, Star Wars, Star Trek, because what I think in a lot of more recent Star Trek stuff that they've gotten completely wrong is they get really locked up onto space battles and stuff. And Star Trek has never been about like battles and wars. It's exploring. It's, it's about exploring and about coming in contact with new civilizations and understanding those civilizations. And that's really what the first film is, as well as tapping into the emotion of the characters probably for, yeah, definitely for the first time because they like the characters themselves weren't particularly emotion based characters they were very more plot based characters in the uh, the series but by the time it gets to the movies we get much more into who they are as beings i have to keep saying beings because some of them are aliens and i can't just keep calling them fucking human beings well and it too doesn't seem like a it's it, like a binary world it doesn't seem like there are 
specifications. I mean, there's sentient AI. Yeah, like, I mean, like <laughs> men, women, she, he. It doesn't seem like this is a place or an environment that we need to really dictate what anything is. That beings really is the most appropriate term for this because we're in such an encompassing universe in a world where. And I can't stress this enough. I think this is one of the things that really has drawn me into Star Star Trek and made me enjoy it so much more is how inclusatory it is that you, you even look in the first movie at the faces and the people in the background. You go from weird lizard aliens to black people to women, and I don't feel that there was such a acceptance, especially in a film universe, as there is shown in the, the late 70s with Star Trek The Motion Picture. And it just goes back to me talking about how non-expansive space travel movies in that science fiction universe was previous two things like Star Trek, the original series, and 2001 A Space Odyssey, and to be completely honest, Dark Star. Benson, Arizona, blue war wind through your hair. My body flies the galaxy. Well, I mean, pretty much uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out, and they Benson, realized that they could possibly make another star trek film and i'm glad that they did and i'm glad they did it in this way instead well, they were working from... on phase two right like like it was going to be star trek the motion or star trek the series phase yes two, it was going to was... be another uh i can't remember exactly what the title was but it was going to be a a new series but they decided to make a movie instead i really think it was actually phase two and it was going to be willard deckard running the enterprise and a lot of like here here's some facts and trivia for you a lot of the things that were used in Wrath of Khan, the, the, the different Enterprise and the models painting the doors blue, stupid little trivia like that, all of that was saved from the Phase 2 idea where they were just going to replicate Star Trek, different captain, this takes place after Kirk, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out, and at that same time period, they had a lot of invested in this. They had sets made, they had a lot of the Enterprise made, they were shooting out at Universal Soundstage, so there was a lot of things that were presented at the time to... Well, if we just scrap this, we can take the rest of the budget and make a movie out of it. And it really makes you wonder, though, looking at when Generations came out and how most of the original Star Trek movies are being released as Generation became more and more and more successful, what would have happened if Phase 2 had its place in between this, that we would have had a completely different series to intermingle and mold with the universe. And I think for the, the most part, what happened with the movie transitioning forward is what saved the entire series. Oh God, yes. It, I'm sure that Phase Two or whatever would have died after maybe two seasons again, because just the interest in Star Trek wasn't there like on a, a weekly basis, like it became in the uh, the 80s. And actually, Next Gen took a while to uh, get off the ground for a while too. After, I mean, the first season is not great, and it took a while for the fan base to really come back and embrace next gen and it make it the popular hit. It was by like season three, four and five. Um, but getting back to the uh, original film, the, the sets are definitely way different. The costuming is way different. Everything changes after this. When you get to part two, uh, it's, it's very much disco in space. It's, it's very Age of Aquarius to me. I think it's very, uh, we're moving into the 60s. We don't exactly know who our audience is anymore. It's the late 70s now. When we left, when Star Trek left the regular lexicon of the world, it was in the early 1970s. And it's such a very, like, beige, drab look. Nothing is really exciting. Nothing says to me space travel. I, I would much more assume that we were going to watch, like, an industrial film about fondue. 
It just seems like a bunch of hip people in a very hip L.A. Hollywood Beverly Hills. Did you check out Bones' sweet medallion and open uh, shirt combo? Oh, the best scene in this movie is when they finally bring Bones back, and he's just got this big full beard, like he's been out on the beach just ravaging pussy and whiskey for the last eight years. It's uh, that's my favorite thing. (laughs) When you don't know the series, like I I have not sat down. And even as a child, like I had a family member who was very, very fond of Star Trek. And I remember watching the pilot with her and her her excitement over Captain Pike and it not being Captain Kirk. That's really where my knowledge went. And then there may be a movie where they help the Welsh or they save the whales or they save Welsh whales. I wasn't sure. I had no knowledge of this. And when this movie begins and you get this bravado captain kirk is introduced and then spock is introduced doing the colonar and you have this very deep importance religious aspect you can understand who spock is right off the bat you get kirk right off the bat you get scotty and some of the lesser characters Chekhov is reintroduced then you get bones and i think the grand way that your main three characters, he don't want to fucking be there but that that introduction all three lead characters you get this wonderful return to the enterprise something that is very important to kirk's heart you have spock traversing through his own mind and heart trying the culinar and then you get a very pissed off McCoy who is fucking ready to get laid and go partying he looks like he's been hanging out with Sammy Hagar for weeks amazing introduction to these characters if you don't know who they are right in those first five minutes it's like well you can identify with one of the three I think it should be obvious who I identify with and to me the overall the V'ger story, I think, is fairly potent in where it goes. But to me, it's not so much about that concept of this AI wanting to embrace some sort of um, uh, like physical being and, and like have emotions and feelings. It's much more about the relationship of the uh, the three main characters and how strained that relationship is, and to see it come back together towards the end of the film once they kind of find themselves a little bit more and come together as characters and realize what they had on the, uh, the original series, the relationship they had and how important that was to their lives and how they've grown. And once they separated, none of their lives felt particularly complete and nothing felt right until they reunite. And they're still not particularly getting along through most of it. Cause there's a, there's a very amazing scene with, uh, Spock bones and, uh, uh, I keep wanting to call him Shatner, but Kirk, uh, they go to like kind of a conference room and Kirk is just kind of hanging out and he's just wanting Spock to talk to him because Spock has been treating Why don't you sit him down? almost like he's a robot. It's like, sit down and sit here and talk to me. We are friends. We have a relationship. And Spock has been so far off in his Vulcan world that he's kind of dipped so far into that logic that he's forgotten his emotions. But once he penetrates Viger quite literally and sees what V'ger wants and sees how he relates to V'ger, he kind of comes out of that Vulcan logic fog and reunites with his friends. And by the end of the, like, when everything is all solved, and Kirk doesn't save the day in this one. He actually has to let Decker have the win on this one. But at the end of the day, though, Kirk did not want to unite with a bald space robot and get zapped into uh, an AI brain-computer thing. But... He lets somebody else have the win because that is what was important. Uh, as we get into the next film in Star Trek II, um, this statement Wrath still really follows through for this film as well, even though it's not a Bravo Part Two. is Spock saying that 
the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And that applies to this film as well, that Kirk has to give it up sometimes and whatever is most important for everyone involved. It's not all about my glory. It's not all about my decisions. Sometimes it's other people who are going to save the day. And he lets Decker do that. And they all unite as friends at the end. And it's, it's kind of very powerful. It's like, all right, the old fucking, the gang is finally back together. Like right when that last reel is finishing up, it's just like, all right, we're back to where we started. And this feels like home again. We'll progress into my theory more as we get into Wrath of Khan. But in the first Star Trek film, I'd say the first three, maybe going into the fourth one, I think the most detailed and important character happens to be McCoy. Because you've got this entire arc and everything that's going on with Kirk. I relate less to McCoy than almost any character. You relate to McCoy really a lot. My name is McCoy. I think he ends up becoming the most important, though, because you've got this huge arc with Kirk doing the opposition of what Spock is. Spock is trying to lose his humanity as Kirk is attempting to learn his humanity, and then you've got the middle ground. You know, like, you've got a yin and yang, but there's those little dots in the middle. The dots in the middle are D. Kelly. That's his entire point. He has the balance of emotion, and his consistency with his judgment calls between the two of these people, I think, is what helps each other, because Kirk is nothing without Spock, and Spock is nothing without Kirk, but if they didn't have McCoy either bitching or reminding them of their humanity or lack thereof between the calls, there is no perfect mixture, and what we're introduced to in this first movie is is the scene you were talking about before that takes place, when Spock appears and he brings himself forward onto the Enterprise, McCoy says, like, you know, you won't believe this, but I'm happy to see you. He himself even knows in this situation there is nothing more perfect than the trinity of our friendship, and Spock has been spending so much time detaching himself from that. That's where McCoy, I think, comes in as the most perfect character, because he's a balance between these two. He And I don't want to give things away before we have to give them away, but when we get toward the end of Wrath of Khan, he becomes one of the most significant important characters when it comes to the remaining humanity of Mr. Spock. And I don't hate the guy. I jokingly like to say I hate Spock. He's an incredibly important character, and why I identify, as you just brought up, with, with Kelly so much, DeForest Kelly's character, Leonard McCoy, is those specific reasons, and it's an argument we get into, and not, I, I mean, it's not like we argue and fucking come at each other with axes. But we'll be talking about films off the show, we'll be going back and forth, and we'll butt head over things, because of, I think, the same reasons Spock and McCoy don't, it's not like they don't like each other, but they don't enjoy each other's space as much as others could enjoy it. It's that constant logic as to where you look at things specifically at a, a filmic level, and I look at it way beyond, and I get attached to the what-ifs and the questions and, and the humanity and the motion behind that when you compare the two things and mix them together. That's what makes Death by DVD. That's what makes the conversation and the show interesting. Without having McCoy as the basis of the friendship behind Kirk and Spock, I think the two would be almost meaningless. I really, and, and why I think that even shows more as a truth when it comes to the movies is we get, I think the next most seen character is Scotty. It's very, very easy to. Ah, Scotty's fucking pointless. He churns the ship, he's just the engine. He's the good-natured drunk. We see Sulu and Chekhov like two or three times. Uh, Chekhov gets, he becomes what, a commander on another ship. The Sulu gets written off and becomes a captain. Uhura is a constant. She shows up the entire time. I don't know why. I don't know what most of them do. 
I, <laughs> these communications. But they keep changing roles. Somebody's weapons in the first movie, and then their communications in the next movie. Who's dri- Why is anyone driving? Sulu it? is the pilot. Why do they have a pilot? This is the fucking future. Because you've got to fly the fucking ship. You what gotta, about like, computers? you got to turn it and shit. Well, I mean, even in the Alien universe, you've got Mother and concepts like that. I, and I, We're picking stupid You're talking fucking... about, yeah, you're talking about 1960s technology. They didn't have any sort of autopilot like ideas of just like, eh, Put the Enterprise on cruise control. It won't run into anything. I may be wrong, but I think the whole concept of, of warp drive and jumping through galaxies actually comes from Star Trek, the original series, that some of these things that we're so familiar with, with Star Wars and Babylon 5 and Battlestar Galactica and so many other series. You had to figure out a, like a scientific way to get into deep space without it taking fucking like, you know, 85 years to get there. So you have to have some sort of like hyperdrive or something like where you can go fucking a million miles an hour, blah, 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 to actually get places that would be worth exploring. And if you wanted to fans of things like Star Trek were so anal as they are now in the 1960s, yes, they completely were. To the extent that in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, there are specific sequences that are shown on the Enterprise's bridge to indicate that they have some sort of anti-gravity device because people continuously kept writing into Gene Roddenberry asking, well, why why are aren't these floating? people floating? So they had to add, and really, that's kind of enticing to the movie itself. We're not going to cover a lot of detail like that, but when, even the first movie, you look at the background of this. Every single thing that is shown to you on screen has something to do with the deeper meaning of the ship until we get into part two and they start reusing the same footage over and over and over again. And I brought this up when I was discussing Dark Star. Some of the fun with these early science fiction 1970s films especially is looking as to what was used in the background and spotting how many muffin tins and blenders and IBMs and Apple IIs are just shoved around in the corners. So much now that it looks like alien technology. But when you were watching this movie in the 70s, it was very easy to yell out, like, that's a fucking Keysonart blender. That's... <laughs> what? Well, That's like, not a I can tell you, thing. as far as the special effects go in the first film, it's the weakest, but it's also, you know, it's the earliest. But the mats, the mat shots are pretty unforgivable in HD. And, um, and they really did think they were hot shit because uh, Kirk being introduced to the Enterprise again by Scotty and then that little shuttle. Holy fuck, what is, what that, two is hours? this glory fuck shot that lasts 15 minutes of just, let's fly around the ship. What's it look like from this side? What's it look like from this side? Underneath it. So much of the movie consists of these elaborate shots of the Enterprise, and I understand that when this movie came out in 1979, so many people had wanted to see this. This was something that was a massive boost for the audience. Then, we never really explored how the Enterprise looked. We hadn't really gone deeply into space and the other technologies that were shown to us in Star Trek, the original series. So when it was made, it was a big selling point. Like, fuck yeah, we can just spend like 11 minutes of the movie showing the ship. You watch it now and it's just, it's it's grueling. There are so many shots of these, and they're articulate models. It's fun going back in time and looking at matte paintings and how things were shot and it's not like we had computer generated imagery so a lot of these shots of like stars and us traveling in space they went to a planetarium and just took the camera and, and faced it upward and shot the, the little shows that you get to see of space and the stars the explosions up at the end of this film the, the massive star space and the birth of whatever happens after V'ger evolves forward those were also shot at a planetarium of them kind of exploding fireworks and little bombs and shot it upside. Well, it, 
I'm saying upside down, but they shot it with the camera facing up and the explosion upside down. So when these things blew and they move outward, it looked like the vast nothing of space and like they were traveling into it. There weren't computers that you could sit down and do this on. So you have this amazing product and so much of it, 40 years, 50 years later, you're sitting and watching and it's like you're just tapping your watch, waiting for some sort of action and something to move forward. But I find a great deal of appreciation in being able to sit down and just like I've been rambling, looking at how this was shot, looking how this was put forward. And a lot of that, I think, is the appreciation of the early Star Trek movies is because they went out of their way to explore space until you get to part four and budgets happen. We'll get there when we get there. And that, as a newcomer, as somebody completely cold to this series, I was so excited that we I got to see all of this, but it gets so fucking strenuous. There's so many shots of the Enterprise and the scene you've been discussing. It's what, I think maybe ten minutes of them just kind of hanging out, then they get to the Enterprise. There's a point to some of that. I mean, a lot of it is just showing off more fancy special effects than the, the show could ever have. And it doesn't particularly interfere with the story itself because the story is a rather slow, slow told narrative, but it's important that it is so we can consider the options of what's going on. And really what this film is about is uh, the importance of friendship and emotion. And when you get to uh, like Star Trek two, the first film is kind of the power of togetherness, the power of emotion. And when you get to subsequent films like part two, it's, it becomes more about the power of, emotion friendship and by the end of that film it gets to the consequences of feeling those emotions and that carries on into part three so like i know they were made so far apart and they weren't really meant to do this unless they were kind of just brilliant and sticking all these things together but i feel like a very deep connection to the first three films of just these characters very much growing and how that growth can affect them, how can it emotionally wreck them, and also the price you're willing to pay for emotion. And that's kind of the theme of those first three films. And then when you get to four, we get into some other shit. But we'll get to that when we get to that. But I think that's so much about what these first three films are, are how much these characters mean to each other and the power of friendship, the power of... uh, somewhat of a power of allegiances to uh, other people. And I don't mean some kind of crazy blind Nazi allegiance, like garbage, more of the um, what you're willing to do for your family and friends. So basically Star Trek is like a Fast and the Furious movie. Well, you, you have the concept of family and it doesn't have to be something of blood and something of relation. It's something of brotherhood. And I hate using that terminology because it invokes things like some sort of dumbass Nazi fellowship, just like you were saying. I mean, it's also kind of gendered when you go into something like brotherhood of just like togetherness. It's, it's, I mean, equality, I guess could be a better term because everyone is attempting to become an equal with one another. But when you're an outsider to the series, what you're exposed to is this relationship of these three people and, and just adding on to what you've been talking about, that really is what makes the entire series beautiful. And if you're a newcomer like me and you don't know anything about this, you have no knowledge of Starfleet and different types of aliens, none of that specifically matters when you follow this thread of the the, the original series, the first six movies, and even going past... And I, I differ a little bit from you. I think part four is where the arc that is begun and part one ends. 
And I think it really is the end of part four that allows us to go back to traversing the, the universe and trekking, if you will. That is an important thing, though, and it's what makes the series because you wouldn't have what makes part five and part six so much fun is all the relationships that were established in the previous show have been reestablished. And by doing that, you are able to introduce the, the movie series to a completely new and different audience that might have not been a part of that. And I'm a child of the late 80s. So when I was growing up, Generations was a very, very important thing. And then it split off so hard after that. You went into Deep Space Nine, and then you had Voyager, and then there's Enterprise, and there's cartoons, and there's there's books, the ones that Shatner had, ghost-written, the ones that he may or may not have actually written. So much more. Video games, the movie series with Generations started to combine things from the original series I, I never had an interest in it specifically because of how vast and how deep all of it was. Coming back and watching the original movies, I was really intimidated because it's like, well, there is so much to say. The fan base is so deep. I, I, I just don't know what to do with this. And what I took from the very first scene of the, the Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979 to the final film was the friendship of the three core people and how all of them are the most important aspects of even one person. If you can manage to combine all of the things that come from Spock, Kirk, and McCoy into your own life, it really is, I dare say, perfection, because all of these different thoughts, all of the things that make these characters when they become one person, when you look at how they operate for the betterment of the ship, for the betterment of the human race, for the world, the galaxy, I think the overall point of these movies really is the the lesson we learn eventually in Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, sometimes it's more important to do something for the future, for the betterment of peace and society, than it is to do for yourself. And it's kind of a beautiful thing that we're able to explore it through these really intricate characters, because all of them are very, very different people. I mean, Captain Kirk is kind of a an explorer of the unknown. He's from the Midwest. He's from what? what oh, it's not Ohio. Iowa. Iowa. He's he's from Iowa, so he's a farmer. And then you've got an old southern doctor from Georgia that's very stuck on his ways and a complete and utter alien. And all of these cultures coming together and rectifying their thoughts and their mannerisms to the greater good of their mission, whether it's science, medicine, or the peace of the known galaxy, it really is defined by all of them toge together. I mean, they're like a big, perfect existence and that's really what I took from all of this I was so happy at the end of the day when I got to part six seeing almost the hope the hope of if you have emotion if you have logic and if you have courage and bravery you too can conquer the great unknown you can track into different galaxies and trains and of thoughts not only that it's not even just about what you can do it's I mean that's part of it but it's more of what you can do to become more a part of the whole and that you're not alone and you can't do all of this by yourself, that you do need people. You do need friends. You do need your logic. You do need kind of outlandish thought patterns. You have to have all these things to make up a complete and utter whole. And that what unites us as beings is the relationships that we form and the friendships that we form. And on top of that, it's learning the acceptance of, of absolutely everything around you. 
Spock does not enjoy McCoy. Despite the fact that Spock is completely logical, he doesn't like him that much. McCoy feels the exact same way about Spock, but they managed to work, for five years at least, they managed to work with one another, and in Star Trek The Motion Picture, that's McCoy's first words. You know what? I'm actually happy to see you. As to where Spock has been so far without emotion, he's been without these people that almost completed him for so long that he's decided that he needed to become... The, the most logical thing in the world. And now I'm going to do something completely stupid and transcend into another series. In Dune, there are these people that are called Mintants. And for all intents and purposes, they're supercomputers who have been taught their entire lives and fed this weird juice, which I don't need to go into in too much detail, to become the most articulate beings on the planet because we abused technology to the extent that there was a giant jihad destroying all technology, and now we have these supercomputers, and they are so intelligent that it's like playing chess. They can easily be led to fault, and easily be led to betray the people that they have worked with their entire careers because they are so logical. That is the problem with Spock himself. When you have everyone working together and you're introduced to the characters in the manner and the diplomacy almost that you're given here, you feel like... Everything is encompassed, that there is no race, there is no creeds, there are no there is no racism rather. There are there are no hate against specific creeds. Everything really is a hopeful world. So before we boldly continue going nowhere, there is something about Star Trek the Motion Picture that really enticed me aside from the development of these characters, and as I was just rambling, the rest of the series really does depend on the development of these characters. But the entity, the villain, I guess you could say, of this film is so different than anything else that we've been exposed to with the rest of Star Trek. Sometimes in the TV series there are things a little bit like this, but that's not what we're talking about. But in, in general, with horror and science fiction motion pictures, V'ger is an absolutely terrifying entity. We talk about things like The Exorcist and the Amityville Horror, and these are supposedly uh, demons that are unleashed from hell, but there's only a limit to what they can do and what their powers are. V'ger is almost God. V'ger, with its own intelligence, doesn't so much kill things, but it almost learns them to death, that it and encounters these beings, and in the beginning of the movie it encounters three Klingon ships, and then it encounters a Federation starbase, I guess you could call it. And it just kind of envelopes them with its energy, and it doesn't kill them, it doesn't destroy them, they're not erased. And when you die, your your energy is dispersed, your body is gone, you're dead. V'ger doesn't do that, it almost assimilates and calculates everything into its own memories so it can relive these memories over and over and over again and learn from them, which is very similar to the species that's encountered in the pilot episode of the original Star Trek series. It's this forever learning thing that has become sentient with its own knowledge and its hunger to continuously learn knowledge, and that's absolutely terrifying. The idea of that is terrifying, and a lot of this is brought on screen. Well, and... That's what turns fucking V'ger goddamn rogue and it goes fucking crazy is because it does it. It only knows one thing at this point, which is report back to creator. And it needs to like it's like a fucking malignant Johnny five where it's just like input, input, and it just keeps taking in as much input as it can until it needs to report back to Steve Gutenberg. But Steve Gutenberg is fucking a NASA relay that is 
hundreds of years old at this point, so it doesn't even exist. So its creator is gone. Its god is dead. And isn't so that terrifying? So it has to figure out a new life for itself. I mean, that's like taking the spake Zarathustra and the gay science by Nietzsche and personifying it and, like, the nihilism and the depression behind those philosophical ideas that is represented on those pages into a personification. It is the most intelligent, perfect being of all time, but yet it doesn't have the ability to feel. So when it is enveloping these beings, when it's taking them over, it doesn't have the concept that it's killing them. It's putting it into its databanks where they technically live forever. And that happens to one of the characters in the movie. Lieutenant Elia is brought on board. Is she a lieutenant? I might have said that stupidly. Just call her Elia. The character Elia is introduced into this movie, and it's somebody that is, is a different species. It's somebody like Spock, who has taken this oath of celibacy, is 100% dedicated to their job, and she ends up being taken. Uh, I'm using the term enveloped, so I'm going to keep well, saying Well, I mean, the, her celibacy was after she had had a relationship with Decker, so I don't know if I think her celibacy was more of a reaction to like having a broken heart. So she decides to like somewhat like Spock to decides to like, I can't deal with all this emotion. So now I'm, I'm going to be celibate and eventually gets sucked up by this like fucking computer and replicated perfectly. With, That's why uh, I like the term envelope, because it's not so much like it's specifically trying to kill somebody or hurt them, but it's trying to really take over in like a blanket or like when you put something in a literal envelope, you're consuming it almost and it's taking over the entity of it. So if you write a letter and you stick it inside an envelope, and you seal it, everything is sealed with inside of it. And that's kind of what V'ger is doing. It's not meaning to cause harm. It's not malevolent or manipulative to an extent that it wants to hurt people. It's doing it for its incessant need to continue learning everything to give it back to the creator. And when Spock does what is the most insane, unlogical thing I think he's ever done, he ventures into the eye of this giant thing. And we've really neglected to talk about the beauty. We talked a little bit and rambled about how long their shots are, and how much we see of the spaceships. But when we are introduced to V'ger, it is quite breathtaking because it's this massive universe style. I mean, you get into the eye of this thing, and it's got its own atmosphere, and it moves into galaxies. And what we realize is all of the things that we are seeing that are within inside of V'ger are really its memories. It lacks the humanity to manipulate and have these memories in, like... A storage bank, which all of us really do in our mind. You have places that you can reach and tap memories and see them, but V'ger displays all of them as one giant opening universe. And as Spock drifts into that, he even finds Ilya that's being represented with, I guess what you could say is her soul, her energy. This giant, massive form of her that exists within side of V'ger, which is just a, a Voyager satellite that was sent off to space it's become so knowledgeable in itself that it manages to house and and hold souls the energy that is composed within all of us that's it's it's such a terrifying beautiful entity that we never really explored deeper but that itself is some of the glory glorious things when it comes to star trek as a universe is that left and right all of these things are exposed to us they realize that they're somewhat dealing with a child a child with no no reasoning ability that it's learning and it's like trying to grow and it's trying to grow but it, it can only go so far without some sort of guidance without its creator but eventually they have to teach it that 
creator's dead and all that's left is you and your kind of persona and the emotion that you're learning at this point is what's going to guide you through the universe as a as a as a new like being well breaking it down to even something more relative to you you can get behind this and maybe some of our audience can what what is the difference than being an actual parent like when you have a physical child to an extent to a certain age you've kind of got this this mass of flesh that doesn't understand anything it can't speak english it can't teach you you can't really show it anything and then suddenly you get to this point where you've got a being that can understand things and you've got to instill right from wrong and i i don't mean this in any sort of political aspect but you know like torturing an animal you you can't do that that's a wrong thing to do i know that's an extreme example but i'm trying to make a point with all of this you have that concept there is the what the enterprise is dealing with is being an a parent and an unknown parent no one no matter how much they study and read and acknowledge books and look at YouTube videos is ready to be a parent. When you have a baby, it's going to be the most terrifying thing. You've got this unknown species. It, it's just screaming at you. What are you supposed to do? That's what V'ger has been doing this entire time. It's throwing a temper tantrum. It doesn't understand what it needs to go forward. Like if you have an infant and it's just screaming at you, how do you know that its butt doesn't itch? And it just can't tell you that its butt itches. V'ger doesn't have that composition. It lacks any form of humanity to even explain that it's confused. It truly is an infant, and that's the, again, I keep repeating myself, that's the most terrifying thing because you've got this omnipotent almost infant with an unexpelled amount of power that can do everything and anything, and the people that have to fix this solution aren't even really talking to each other. They're, <laughs> they're not even really feeling emotion the the humanity that this entity lacks the crew of the enterprise also at the same time is, is they're lacking it the composition and how this movie unfolds even if you're not a star trek fan in general i brought this up earlier it really does kind of play off like an old western and i don't even mean old it plays like a 60s john ford movie you've got these nomadic heroes, these these black hat cowboys that are all riding in from different areas and they have to solve the problem. And it's the unknown. I mean, what 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 is more of the unknown than the Wild West and looking at how the format of all those movies are? Star Trek really is just venturing into the unknown Western style and V'ger, I think, is really one of the most beautiful, frightening, and intricate things that you have even in horror history, yet alone science fiction. So there are so many paths and routes that we can continue going into when it comes to Star Trek The Motion Picture. We we didn't talk a lot about the other characters, but you know what? The great thing is, there's another movie. We'll get more into them here in a little while. To, to really get to the end of this and to sum up Star Trek, I think without any knowledge of the series previously, what you're allowed to be exposed to, what you're allowed to feel is a very intricate and deep, and this isn't the best term, but exploration into brotherhood and loving people that are your family but are your family. You don't have to be related to someone to understand them. And then there are so many deeper-seated messages. I really get attached to the idea of, of V'ger, the Voyager itself. Such a terrifying and elaborate but yet beautiful villain, something that... Even in our daily lives, we, we go through every day maybe with animosity or confusion toward other people and other cultures and imagine being some 
some some creature that couldn't understand things. We have this beautiful, absolute gift of humanity and emotion, the one thing V'ger needed and, and couldn't live without. The end of the movie, we're allowed to see a birth. That's the same thing that McCoy calls it. A new species, perhaps, something that can traverse a different reality in space and time, the future of our evolution, something combined with things of the unknown and yet everything that we're familiar with. We hold these phones in our hands every day. What if we became part of it? That's kind of the concept and the things that are explored with the motion picture. Star Trek 1 is pretty beautiful. Alert. 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 Incoming transmission from Starfleet. Star alert. Seven, four, one, zero. Transmitting for regular eye. SMS, this is the Reliant. We have been attacked by an unseen enemy. The enemy has... We had no option. We had no option but to surrender. We don't have much time left. Oh. Wow. That sounds terrible. Good thing we already have a mission, which is discussing Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Mission 113, talk about Wrath of Khan, rerouted to immediate warp travel to regular eye. Well, I guess. Let's, uh, boogie-oogie-oogie. Commence warp speed. Engage. Warp speed engaged. Starting life support systems. Check. Verify cooling system function. Check. Communication systems online. Data transmission in progress. Initializing warp drive. Warp field initiated. Warp drive operational. Reactor 1, Reactor 2, Reactor 3, Reactor 4, all reactors operational. All systems are operational. Seems like that'll do it for this week's episode. So much for a three-part special. Strap in. Next week, we go Warp 11 with Wrath of Khan. The ashtray's full. Come <laughs> on.